Our subject this afternoon is preaching and pastoral care. Let's remind ourselves what the word pastor means and where it comes from and what duties it entails. The word pastor and its derivative pastoral both come to us, or pastoral actually, both come to us from Middle English. Um, They were first used in the 15th century and they come from the Latin word pastoralis or pastoralis. And it simply means herdsman, all right? And so pastoral care is herdsman care or shepherd care. It's the work of a man who has charge of a flock of goats, a herd of cows, a flock of sheep. And so when we say pastoral care, we're simply pointing to the work of a herdsman, a husbandman, or a shepherd. Now, what is to be the nature of the pastor's work? Well, pastoral care is well-defined and illustrated by our Lord in John 10. I don't see how any pastor cannot love Acts 20. I don't see how any pastor cannot love John 10. Let me read from John 10, 1 to 15. This is our Lord speaking to us. And he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he's not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And I know my own. And my own know me. Even as the Father knows me. And I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now we see here that there are good shepherds and there are bad shepherds. From the time I entered the ministry, right at the very beginning of uh, this work, I read um, the autobiography of Richard Baxter. And uh, some of you remember that for years on our bulletin we had a picture of an antique shepherd. And uh, that picture came from the spine of that autobiography of Baxter, a publisher called Dent over in uh, Nigel Kerr. is the guy that gave that to me. I don't know why. And then I read The Reformed Pastor. 
And um, when you think about what it means to be a shepherd, you can't help but immediately realize that good shepherds only exist against the background of bad shepherds. You can't define what's good without defining what's bad. That's one of the main problems we have today in the church in America is that we want to define what is good without bad. We want grace without judgment. We want forgiveness without repentance. And so at the very beginning of the work that I do as a pastor, I began when I read the Bible to put in the margin anywhere I saw anything of Scripture that applied to false shepherds. And so if you read my Bibles, you'll find in the margin all over the place, FS, 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 FS. And if you're going to go in the ministry, whether it's as a pastor or as an elder, you're an officer of Christ's church, whatever the office, uh, whatever the way of ruling, governing, whatever polity you have. If you're an officer, you should go make a habit of going through the Bible and marking down in the margins the characteristics, you know, just have your own abbreviation. Just mark it in the, you know, what, anything that says what a good shepherd is and what a bad shepherd. A true shepherd, a false shepherd. I use FS, you use whatever you want. Cultivate all through your life the habit of knowing what Scripture says about a false shepherd. All right? And so what we see here right away is that there are good shepherds and there are bad shepherds. And our Lord teaches us several methods of evaluating the difference between them, and we are to take careful note of that difference. First, the good shepherd, his voice and his person. The good shepherd is known by his sheep. It says in verse 3, to him the doorkeeper opens, and what? The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him. Why? Because they know his voice. All right? Senior pastors have a position of pride in a church. Stephen was very, uh, typically, Stephen was very graceful in what he said earlier in talking about the tendency of counselors to think themselves superior to the preacher. But the truth is, for every counselor that feels himself superior to the preacher, the preacher, there's a hundred of us that feel superior to the counselor. All right? And don't ever think that because the sheep are preferential to you that that means you're better than the counselor. It's bunk. Why do the sheep listen to you in a way they don't to other people? Well, the reason is because they know your voice. And... When I think about what it means to be a pastor, I can't help but think about farmers. Because if you've ever ministered in a farming community, you've been around milk parlors a lot. And once that image is set in your mind, you can't get it out of your mind. Plus, the Lord was wonderfully good to me in that when I came back to the Lord, I was able to work for a number of months on a farm milking goats, about 50 goats, morning and evening by hand. And so the image of what it means to care for a flock is very clear in my mind. And one thing I'll tell you is the goats, the cows, love the shepherd. 
because so many things come to them every single day. It's reinforced that, that make their lives uh, less painful and more happy. For instance, when their udders are swelling and they're uncomfortable because of the milk that's in them, you're the one that relieves them. You milk them. And it's not a bad thing. And then, of course, there is the, the matter of feet. You know, the person that milks them gives them the feed typically. You know, they associate that being milked with feed. You know, you put the feed in, you milk them. They eat, they're being milked, right? And so this intimacy is the reason that the people of a congregation love you. It's not because your gifts are superior. It's not because you have a special way of relating to them. <laughs> it's not because you're taller. It's because every single week you feed them. And so, of course, they're going to be committed to you in a way they're not to the other men that don't feed them. So don't ever be foolish. It's, it's just like the issue of adultery. You know, you're, you're in counseling and some woman wants you. Why? Well, I trust me, it's not because your breath is good. You know, it's because she associates with you affirmation of her existence. You listen to her. She cannot get her husband to listen to her. And that's, that's it, you know. There's nothing romantic about it. You listen to a woman, you can have her. But you don't ever want to do it, ever want to do it. And so let's start by acknowledging that the reason that the sheep love the shepherd is that, and that they know his voice is because he is their shepherd. He's the one that feeds them. He's the one that milks them. He's the one that sees when they're sick and comes and helps them. Okay? And so the good shepherd is known by his sheep. And what? He calls them by name. Did you notice that in verse 3? He calls his own sheep by name. Now, if you have a herd of one... You know, like these agrarian homeschooling dudes. It's no big deal to know one cow by name, Bessie. When you have 10, it gets not much more difficult. When you have 20 or 30, it gets a little more difficult. When you have 100, it gets more difficult, right? One of the primary uh, um, benefactors, faithful men financially in the reform world was a man named Robert Dendalk. And Robert Dendalk's business was farming. And in the gender-neutral Bible controversy, um, I was out at Westminster with David, and I think, I don't know, maybe it wasn't that time. But I was talking to Bob Dendalk, and he said, where are you from? I said, Indiana. He said, really? He said, we're starting a farm up there. Well, it's those fair oaks farms that you see on 65 when you drive, you know, and they have tours and you can go buy cheese. And uh, he said, you know, we're just starting a farm up there in northern Indiana right off 65. He said, come on up and I'll give you a tour. Well, you know, for various reasons I didn't do it, probably because of my pride. <laughs> um, well, now they have tours that you pay. So I ended up taking a tour. He's now dead. I was just a grunt that paid the money, and I went through, right? Well, they have 35,000 cows that they milk, okay? So we went on this tour. 
my mother and I. It was, a, it was sweet. It was really sweet. And, uh, you know, they put you in a bus and they drive you through these barns. And I'm telling you, I've never seen any cow cared for as well as those cows are cared for, even by the good farmers in my church. You know, oh, man, they have it nice. Then at the end of the tour, you go where the, uh, the lazy Susan or the turntable is. They milk 70 cows at a time, okay? The cows get on. In one revolution, they're done. They get off, on, off, 70 at a time, three times a day they're milked, okay? And while you're up there looking out over this turntable, they tell you that every cow has, apparently on its ear, a transponder. And that as they're milked, the transponder downloads the details about the cow. Every detail they need to know about every single cow, they know. They know what the butterfat content is. They know how many pounds each milking. You know, they even know how many steps that cow takes. Okay? They count the steps. Why? They count the steps because that's the best predictor of the health of the cow. Okay. Now, you, I'm going to come in for the kill. Remember what David and, uh, David and Stephen and David have all been saying, which is the reason we're not shepherds is that we really do not want to know our sheep. Where there's a will, there's a way. Okay? If we don't know our sheep, if we don't know their health, it's because we don't want to know their health. Guys, this is just absolutely true. If you don't want to know what's going on with your wife, you won't know. And how many times we look at our wives and what do we do? We know they're on the verge of crying. And so we get less sensitive because we just really don't want to deal with emotional baggage right now because we had a hard day. <laughs> and so here these guys are and they find you know, this gets back, uh, it gets back to you talking about the Christians and how, Christ how pagans are willing to look at the numbers, you know what I'm saying? And so when it comes to cows and milk, you know, we're willing to look at the numbers because we know that the numbers will end up producing numbers for us, right? It's good for the bottom line. So what's the bottom line of ministry? Now, I'm going to tell you two things. First, the bottom line is the money of your church. Okay? The numbers who attend. All right? When I went in the ministry, my father said to me, a home-visiting pastor makes a church-going people. Okay? If you're concerned about the numbers in your church, and you have a real church, I'm not talking about fake churches, there are lots of ways of getting numbers without being a church. But if you want to have people in your church, love them, care for them, be intimate with them, and they will come. But guys, listen, the bottom line is not our budgets and how many people are in the church. David and I watched my brother Nathan be faithful with his flock. And it just simply went down and down and down. And it didn't go down because Nathan was not faithful. 
It didn't go down because Nathan didn't have a sense of humor and wasn't loving. <laughs> you should have seen how many people were there at his funeral. But they weren't there in his church. Nathan was faithful and disciplined. It didn't matter to him if it was an elder or a parishioner. If they needed to be rebuked, he rebuked them. And all of you would love to be rebuked by Nathan. It wasn't that he had a, a method in rebuking that was awful. Nathan was a lover. So I'm not saying that you're necessarily going to see success, but I want you to understand that the bottom line really isn't those numbers. The bottom line is really that final moment when you do or do not hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. The bottom line doesn't come until Jesus Christ looks at you and, and announces the verdict. And the verdict is given on the basis of whether you have built with precious stones or with wooden hay and stubble, right? Right? We all know this. But then that's the job of a preacher is to say what everybody already knows. All right? So by faith, I tell you that the bottom line is not until Jesus Christ says, well done, good and faithful servant, or badly done, or depart from me. And so we see here that the mark of a good shepherd is that they know him and that he knows them. Okay? Fair Oaks Farm knows every single one of their 35,000 cows. They know when they, when they get pregnant. They know when they cast their calves. They know what their butterfat content is. They know how often they get mastitis. They know how many, how many steps they've walked every single day. Okay? Recently, Joseph sent me an article, and he wrote up this perfect summary of the article at my request, <laughs> and I have it in my notes, um, but now I just want to tell you the story, because I don't have the time to read the summary, even though it's a wonderful summary. If you want it, send me an email, and I'll send it to you, but it's this story about how... Um, Um, merchants know that people's purchase habits are very entrenched and hard to break. And so if you're used to buying toilet paper at the dollar shops and your groceries at Walmart and, and your gas at BP and it's very difficult to get you to change. Once you're in a habit, it's very, very, very difficult to get you to change. Until what? Until you have a baby. And when you have a baby, your entire purchase habits are up for grabs. Okay? Completely. Now listen, if you're a shepherd, this should immediately be going off like explosives in your mind. Because you, th you should think, okay, how do we know who's having the babies in Bloomington? Because if we can get them when they're having the babies, we can bring them to the true church of Jesus Christ. Right? Right? And this is the reason that far and away the most effective evangelist ministry of this church is blooming moms. Right? We all know this. You know, we keep having people come into this church and come to the Lord through blooming moms. Why? Well, it's because when you have a baby, everything's up for grabs. So, Target which I, I don't like Target from 
from top to bottom. I've never liked Target. I can't stand Target. Well, anyhow, Target wants to hit the holy grail of merchandising. And so they hired a statistician who liked playing with numbers to try to figure out how they could game it and find out when women were pregnant. So this guy just started picking at it. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful if a church like ours started trying to game pregnancies in town? I mean, look, there's nothing wrong with that. That's marketing that's wonderful, right? So they started to game it, right? And this guy spent years trying to figure it out, and he finally hit on about 10 product categories that indicated pregnancy, all right? And so they track the person. You know, they've got these little cards now you have to carry around to get good prices, right? They track their buying habits, and they figured out that there were about 10 things that if there was a habit or a... a, a, a uh, 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 some, some meshing, some convergence of purchase of these things that they knew that person was pregnant, all right? They were so good at this that they began to send out coupons for strollers, for high chairs, for diapers, for certain additives, food additives that pregnant women like, certain lotions they like, that they like unscented versus scented or something. All this stuff, they had it absolutely down. One day up in Minneapolis, a man came into the store. He was furious. He went to the manager, and he said to the manager, he said, how dare you? He said, I have a young 16-year-old daughter in my home, and you are sending her all kinds of baby product coupons. A week later, he called them up, and he said to them, I have to apologize to you. You knew my daughter better than I did. And then you think about how we don't know our people. And it's so wicked. You know, I just was overwhelmed by that story to see that Target knows our people. And we don't. We walk into rooms just like... Uh, I don't know whether it was you or David that was saying it, but we walk into a room and we cultivate ignorance of our people. We cultivate it. It's a, it's a commitment of ours. Elders, are, it's wicked for elders to do this. Jesus says, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. I always tell men and women that are preparing to be professors that if they're going to be a professor, for heaven's sakes, can't they please profess? You know, please, would you please profess? You know, if you're going to be an elder, would you please eld? If you're going to be a father, would you please father? You're going to be a husband. Would you please husband? You're going to be a mother. Would you please mother? Don't hire somebody else to raise covenant children. You know? Well, we can't fault them if we're not being pastors, right? We can't fault them. The bad shepherd, the false shepherd, the thief and robber, the stranger is not known by the sheep, and so when he approaches, the sheep flee from him. He's like a good guard dog who knows the difference between his master and a stranger, and a stranger he doesn't trust. 
But unlike a good guard dog, sheep cannot growl and they can't bark and they can't bear their fangs. There's only one thing a sheep can do, and that's to flee. God has been pleased to give sheep no protection. Except what? Except the shepherd. A stranger, verse 5, they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. And so the true pastor is known by his sheep. They know his smell. Was that you that was talking? Yeah, it was you that was talking about the physicality of ministry. I, I know, it's probably me, but you were talking about it. You may not have used the word. They know his smell, they know his dress, they know his car, they know his use of money. They know his touch, they know his tone, they know his voice. I think one of the great failures on the part of elders and pastors and older women with younger women and and parents with their children is that we don't touch. Scripture is very clear about touch. It's all through Scripture. You see the scene of Joseph greeting his father after years of being down in Egypt. And what happens? They fall over each other. Then you see the scene of Paul and the Ephesian elders in Miletus on the shore there. And it's so unbelievably intimate. You know, they just kissed and kissed and cried and cried. And what are we today? We're a bunch of disembodied brains. There's a real spiritual issue there. If you look at a woman and that woman can't meet your eyes, what do you know? You know she's been sexually molested, right? You just know it. Well, you don't go and try to hug her. You give her a distance. Well, you're talking about a man? There can't be any question of your motives in hugging a man, at least with a woman. You know, theoretically, she could think that it's sexual when you hug her, but not a man. You know, and so today we don't touch people. And I'm telling you, if you touch people, it will build your ministry with them. I promise you this. If you touch people, it will build your ministry. This is reason that the Apostle Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And this is not culturally relative. You know, it's not a function of ancient culture, and today we're a bunch of disembodied brains. When you went to bed with your wife, you went to bed with your wife. You know? (laughs) Somehow you didn't think everything was taken care of once you had the kiss at the altar. The wedding night, you were waiting, right? And yet when it comes to our relationships with men, you know why I'm committed to touching men is because there's so many homosexuals in this community. And I think that we should touch men to de-eroticize it. And so that's the reason why I always kiss them. Because I want it to be clear to them that it's not sexual, it's affectional. It's principial. It's spiritual. You know, you've got John at the Last Supper, in the midst of the arriving amongst themselves, the striving amongst themselves, is to see which of them is the greatest. And what's John doing? He has his head on Jesus' breast. I mean, we can't even conceive of that, you know. The true pastor is known by his sheep. They know his smell, they know his dress, they know his car, they know his money, they know his touch, and they know his tone, and they know his voice. 
They know his voice and they follow him. Preaching is not preaching without knowledge of the souls that the preacher is addressing. His calls are to be very specific calls to turn from sin and to believe in Jesus Christ. And it's essential his calls be immersed in personal, intimate knowledge of his souls. The soul God has placed under his authority. In other words, the care of a shepherd for his flock and for every individual sheep is as foundational for preaching as faith in Jesus Christ and submission to the authority of the word of God. Did you hear me? The care of a shepherd for his flock and for every individual sheep is as foundational for preaching as faith in Jesus Christ and submission to the authority of the word of God, which is to say the preacher has a master and a message, but also a flock. An individual sheep, not a herd, but a flock, each one of whom he knows by name, counting them one by one as they go in and out. And listen, I've been a pastor of a church of 600. You can know who's there in a church of 600. Richard Baxter knew who was there in a church of 1,500. It's not that difficult. You just have a sense, and when you get home, you talk to your wife, with so-and-so, and she'll say to you, no, he wasn't there. You just know it. Okay? Personal knowledge, this is our calling. Intimate knowledge, painfully intimate knowledge. This is our privilege. Now, you're going to be grossed out by this, but let me give you an idea what I'm talking about, painfully intimate knowledge. There was an older couple that came to my country church up in Wisconsin. Went to visit them one day. The entire visit I was sitting there was a discussion of the man's bowel movements. Okay? The most graphic and, on that particular occasion, joyful, celebratory (laughs) description of how God had worked in his bowel movements. And I'm sitting there as a young man, never having given a thought to my bowel movements yet. (laughs) My brother once said, you know you're getting old when you talk about your bowel movements and food. Remember saying that? (laughs) You know? And here this guy was in his 80s with his wife sitting there, and she was just so proud of him. And I realized there what it is to be a shepherd. If I was sitting there thinking about, I can't believe I'm having to sit. And I, of course, I was, I was sitting there thinking that. <laughs> but I was also congratulating him on the success of his bowel movements. How could I not do it? It was the most important thing in his life. Now, listen, man. If bowel movements, how much more physical intimacy? How can we care for our sheep and not know how many times a week or month they're having sex with one another? We're counseling their marriage, and we don't have the you-know-whats or the faith to ask them about their intimacy. We don't have the faith to ask the man if he caresses her during intimacy. We don't have the faith to ask about pornography. This is insane. And so when I say painful intimacy, I mean painful intimacy. You cannot love people without knowing the details of their bodily functions, of their intimacy. And you say, well, the Bible never shows this. I say, oh, come on. It does too show it. You know? Don't deprive one another. (laughs) 
apparently the Apostle Paul knew something about the men and the women, because men do deprive their wives of sex, okay? It's not just women that do it. Apparently he knew this was going on. He also knew that a man had his father's wife. It's just amazing to me how we think that it's God's calling on us to be more prissy than Scripture is. There's a reason you don't know your sheep. There's a reason I don't know. You know, everybody always talks and cuts slack to women who, who talk about how they don't want to have a child and raise the child. And so they abort their child, right? You know, the child was going to be unwanted. The child was going to grow up without a father. The child was going to grow up in poor socioeconomic situations. The child was going to be a down <coughs> It's going to have spina bifida, you know. Yeah, everybody just says, well, you know, we didn't want the child to have to suffer a life like that, right? You're, you're all with me. It's such a lie. Because the issue is never the child. The issue is the parent. The parent doesn't want to have to suffer watching a child with Down syndrome be rejected. The parent kills the child because the parent doesn't want to have to suffer the pain of the child. You have children. Everybody have children. You know what I'm talking about. How do you have a child without suffering when the child suffers? You can't do it. And so the reason we as pastors are not knowledgeable about the women and men in our church have been raped. And you say, well, men. And I say, listen, guys, let me tell you, men are raped all the time. That's the final secret. Okay? If you don't know about the people in your church who have been raped and who have been beaten. You, listen, guys, yesterday Joseph was talking to me, and I was saying that, that I just didn't know what to say today. And he said to me, well, get one main point. What would it be? And I said, I don't know. Well, here's the main point. The main point is love your people. Love them. That's the main point. Because if you love your people, when you get into the pulpit and you begin to preach, your love will overwhelm your pride. Lord willing, <laughs> with a lot of prayer and a lot of kicks in the butt by your wife. <laughs> Love your people. Dad had that illustration of that woman that wrote him, and she said the big truth about preachers. You remember that? And it's in the book. So if you buy one of those books, you'll... And, and there, there are no profits, no royalties. None. Absolutely no royalties. <laughs> okay. And she said, you know, the big truth about preachers, and I think one of you guys said this, is that you love your books, you love your doctrine, you love everything but us. And she said, you know, we'll, we'll put up with your sins, we'll put up with your mistakes. We know that you're not perfect, we know you're kind of stupid, and we know you're selfish. And, you know, she goes on talking about all the things they know about us, which we don't think they know, <laughs> you know. They know about it, they know their anger about the past, all that stuff, it's clear to them, you know. She says, but if you love us, that's all we ask. If you just love us, you know. And so if we love our people, love covers a multitude of mistakes. But that's not what it says. It says love covers a multitude of sins. And you wouldn't believe what our people will put up with from us. Two weeks ago, I yelled yelled at this man who is an elder of mine. 
I yelled at him. It took him about 24 hours, and then he forgave me, all right? He said he forgave me within 20 minutes. But it took work, right? It took work. Guys, you're a sinner, <laughs> you know? Let me, let, me, uh, <laughs> let me disengage you from the notion that if you live properly, you won't have to ask forgiveness. David and I knew a pastor like that. I call him the hairspray pastor. And he never made a mistake. Well, because he never improved the text. I remember sitting in the church one time when he preached on the subject of uh, Simon, who was judging the woman, right? Who was washing his feet with her hair and her tears. Remember that? Simon's sitting there saying, if he knew what kind of a woman that was, he wouldn't let her do that. And Jesus says, Simon, right? So he preached that text, and I'm sitting there, and the whole church is just filled with Simons. It's filled with every rock star of the evangelical world, right? And it gets to the end of the sermon, and guess what? Somehow, it had no application to any Simons there. There was absolutely no application. It was just, isn't the woman wonderful? And of course, you know, you can have everybody happy with you to talk about the beauty of the woman's gift to Jesus of love, right? Anointing him for burial. You know, you can go on and on and on and on. But Jesus says, Simon, when I came in your house, you know, Simon, let me ask you, who loves more? Man that's forgiven much, man that's forgiven a little. Well, I remember he says, well, well, uh, you know, I, I suppose, you know. So afterwards, what did I do? Well, you know what I did, right? I went up to him and I said, I said, brother, you pulled your punch. You pulled it. How could you do that? Listen, guys, if we're going to care for our sheep, we have to be intimate with them, painfully intimate. If we're painfully intimate with them, the next thing that's going to happen is we're going to correct and rebuke and exhort because we know what needs to be corrected and rebuked and exhorted, right? Now, here's a secret. If you correct and rebuke and exhort a man, one of two things will happen. He will either hate you or he will love you. There will be no middle ground. And so if you want strong men in your church, be painfully intimate with them, then based on your love for them, rebuke them. And then they'll either kill you or they'll love you. And now you know why pastors avoid intimacy, avoid sinning with people, and why they avoid rebuking, particularly men. And the reason is because they don't want to die. And that brings us to the second half of the text, right? Where Jesus says that you know a good shepherd because a good shepherd what? He lays down his life for the sheep. Now, every time I preach on this, and it comes up all the time in Scripture, it's so inconvenient. I always blush and I always think, well, I can't say that, right? So what am I blushing about? Well, think of all the places that the Apostle Paul talks about not profiting from the Word of God, not peddling Scripture. 
working with his own hands, not taking anything from the Corinthians, right? And what do I do? I get a salary of about $73,000 from this church, okay? Now, I don't know what to deal with it. In thinking about bringing that up today, I thought to myself, all right, I'm going to resign the pastor and I'm going to go back to work so that I can do the thing that I believe I should do. Now, listen, man, if you preach, those thoughts are going to come into your mind all the time. Constantly, as you preach, Satan is going to assault you with your sin. Not just your weakness, but your sin. All right? I don't think it's just weakness that I get paid and have always gotten paid. I have not always gotten paid. And before I ever got paid, I did this. All right? Okay? Nevertheless, it is my sin. I do love money. There's no question in my mind that I love money. All right? There's no question in Dave Carell's mind that I love money. Well, <laughs> I wish I loved money the way you did. David just said, I love money. And it's like, don't you wish you loved money the way David did? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> How many of us wish we love money the way David does? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Oh, here's another thing I want to say to you. Okay, so you have to die. You die financially, right? Okay? But you also die with shame. You die with time. Remember day and night with tears. Remember Dave Carell talking about that. You die with reputation if you're helpful. It's being helpful to your sheep and having a good reputation are mutually exclusive. Okay? You can't have both. Either you'll love the one and hate the other, or you'll hate the one and love the other. You cannot have a good reputation and be helpful to your sheep. <laughs> do you believe me, or do you think you're the one exception to the rule? Come on. Come on. All right. You die money. You die time. You die reputation. You die to your children. You either have faith for your children that God will provide for them, or you create bitter children and a bitter wife. How do you keep your children from resenting the church and growing up to be pastor's kids? You know how? Uh, David alluded to it when he pointed out that there are three pastors in the crowds. The way you do it is... You teach your children to love the church. You never flinch. You don't say, I'm sorry, honey, but I have an elders meeting tonight. You say, I have an elders meeting tonight. You know, come with me. You go to Presbytery, you take your kids with you. You know, and they run up the down elevator at General Assembly is you're off someplace else, you know, and people say, hey, somebody's kids. Yeah, that's Bailey's kids, you know. <laughs> and they, they grew up okay. You did that a lot with Michael, right? Yeah, yeah. Joseph grew up running up the down elevator at General Assemblies. <laughs> or escalator, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Joseph would figure it out. <laughs> Joseph, we want to report on that next year. <laughs> And so, men, you have to die. And it says what? It says that the good shepherd gives up his life for his sheep, right? 
He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who's not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. So if you get paid, does that mean that you can't be a faithful shepherd? No. No. But it makes it hard. Because I tell you, there is no decision on the part of spiritual leaders that is not a financial decision. And you see my firm resolve on that, and that's because of the whole thing about John MacArthur the last few days. There's absolutely no question that money is at the center of our hearts. And the question is whether or not we love God and discipline money, or whether we love money and discipline God. And that issue comes up constantly. You're going to tell me that a man makes a decision to maximize the exposure of his Bible study notes and that money has nothing to do with it? It's ludicrous. What he says is, I want the most used Bible in the world to be the one that my notes are in because people are using the Bible. And so what he's saying is, I have to use a tool that's, that's evil in order to accomplish good. And that's always the way we rationalize decisions in elders' meetings. What are elders' meetings? Elders' meetings are always a contest between crash utilitarianism and faith. Every decision about discipline is a decision whether to trust God to use the tool he ordained or to have another way of getting where God wants to go, but a different path than he wants us to take. Well, I know that you ordain discipline, but... God, we can see in this particular circumstance, discipline's only going to make the people mad. <laughs> and so we know that you want disciples. But in this day and age, it's much better to have women serving communion and women leading the diaconate and women teaching and women, because this is like a, a bait and switch kind of thing. You know, if all the sophisticates of Manhattan are like, you know, if, if, if they you know, we can get them to let down their guard and come in a church, you know. They see women everywhere, you know. We, have a, we know your goal, God. I mean, we're committed to only having me preach, and I'm a man. <laughs> but if we just use women everywhere else, everybody will just kind of... Uh, you don't understand the culture today, God. And so, you know, let us make it appear that women have authority over men, or at least that it doesn't matter whether it's a man or a woman, and then we'll get them eventually where you want to go, because one day they'll get to heaven and realize God the Father Almighty is the Father. The important thing is to get them to heaven, and then God, you can do all the tough lifting in heaven. And there's the Apostle Paul doing all kinds of tough lifting every time he opens his mouth, every time he picks up his pen. But somehow we don't ever have to do the tough lifting, you know. I couldn't help but see who isn't here from these two churches today. Men in the ministry that aren't here. If you thought through those names, and if you wondered, do they not need to hear David speak to us? on the death of pastoral care and the seduction of the pastorate? Do they not need to hear Max speak to us on discipline? Do they not need to see Max's faith 
Do they not need to hear Stephen warn of the dangers of counseling? Is that why they're not here? You know, they don't need it. You say, well, what are you bringing up individuals for? And I say, you know, I am incapable of living without thinking individually. And I think it's a mark of a man that God is starting to use. That nothing is ever hypothetical or aggregate. Everything's painfully individual. (laughs) You know? Are you grieving for my brother at who is not here today? If you love him, you should be grieving. Now, he hasn't said anything to me, but, you know, I love my brother. You know? How could I not love my brother? (laughs) The good shepherd lays down his life his time. He does not apologize to his wife and children for laying them down for the sake of the sheep. Okay? You want to know why wives get bitter and children get nasty? It's because the father is constantly apologizing. He may not ever say, I'm sorry, but it's just clear that he resents his work. Here's an idea. If you love your work, your sons will love the work too. Your wife will love the work too. And if you don't, she'll be bitter. That's just the truth. So if your dad was gaga about the church, guess what? You may be a pastor someday. (laughs) And if you're gaga about the church, guess what? Your son may be. Not because you raised him telling him he should be a pastor. My father, I don't ever remember in any way, dad, pushing me in the slightest to the ministry. Maybe you do. I don't. I just said, you can do anything you want, Father, as long as you go to seminary. He said that to you. He said it to all of us. He never said it to me. He said go to law school mm-hmm. after seminary. Seriously. You know, he didn't pay for me to go to the seminar. <laughs> I didn't need it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He never did that with me. What he did every single dinner was say, Tim's going to grow up and be a trash man. You remember that. Yeah, that's what he said. He just made fun of me all the time. And they were for good reason, guys. Trust me. <laughs> And trash man, trust me. He says ditch digger. All right. Yeah. The good shepherd, guys, lays down his life for the sheep. And if you love the church and you don't apologize for laying down your life and the life of your wife and your children, they'll love the church. And there's nothing more worth loving. You can love your family, but your family will be gone one day. In heaven, there's neither marrying nor the giving of marriage. But in heaven, we will have all our brothers and sisters, our fathers and mothers in the faith. And men, you better start making the transition. You know how John Donne says, here at the door, 
tune my lips that what I am to do there, I do here before, okay? And so you better start transitioning your affections and your commitments from your mother and your father to those who do the will of their heavenly father. Now, these are the marks of a faithful shepherd. A faithful shepherd is intimate with his sheep, and his sheep are intimate with him. He knows them by name. They know, they know his voice. They know everything about him, right? And he lays down his life for the sheep. He doesn't require the sheep to lay down their lives for him. He lays down his life for the sheep. Now, my topic is pastoral care and preaching. So how does this apply to preaching? Just let me give some thoughts about this, okay? Um, number one, David made an illusion, I th- or somebody did. Anyhow, you saw David and me talking at one point. Something somebody said reminded us of a story that Dad would tell. And the story had to do with a guy named Harold John Ockengay. Now, Ockengay was the guy that started uh, Fuller Seminary. He was a muckety-muck with Billy Graham, uh, very uh, patrician if you know what the word patrician means, uh, proud and sophisticated. And he was the pastor of Park Street Church, which is on the common in Boston downtown, all right? It's where William Lloyd Garrison first said no union with slaveholders in the basement of Park Street Church, all right? And Ockengay, when Dad was the, uh, Dad and Mud, actually, both of them were staff workers for InterVarsity, in Cambridge. They lived on Massachusetts Avenue, and they went to church at Park Street. And years later, Ockengay was in his dotage. He was close to death, and Christianity Today interviewed him. And in the interview, Ockengay said, I did my counseling in the pulpit. And David and I turned to each other when something you said reminded us of this, and we both looked at each other, and I said to David, before he ever opened his mouth, I said, I know what you're going to, you know, I know what you're going to say, you know. And what he was going to say was call attention to that statement by Ockengay and, and remind me that Dad was very opposed to the statement. What Dad said was, that was not true of Ockengay. If it had been true, we would not have gone to that church. And then he said, furthermore, the editor should never have allowed that comment to get into the interview. There are things men say when they're older that good editors will keep them from going into print with. (laughs) And so you learn something about editing, you learn something about Ockengay, you learn something about preaching. And what you learn about preaching is that it is impossible to preach as God calls us to preach if we are not constantly counseling. It's impossible. How on earth can you preach to the aggregate if you avoid contact with the individual? This is insane. And yet, you wouldn't believe how many men make a principle out of that insanity. So, for instance, men that talk just incidentally about how many are you running, how many am I running, you immediately know, principally, they avoid contact with the people they're running. And then you'll read these, you know what, Vernon Grounds, a great evangelical, uh, well, a well-known evangelical leader said, and he was great on this point. He said, evangelicals worship the bitch goddess of success. 
And so if you're into the bitch goddess of success, you read all these church growth and missional and all this church planning blank. Okay? And what you'll find in there is exhortations again and again and again to not waste your time on the one lost sheep and to get your mentality out of the farmer into the rancher. This is a common metaphor. They use it constantly when we went over to St. Louis with Acts 29. There were good things there, but a lot of it was this, you know. Men, until you give up the hopeless cases, you'll never be able to grow your church, (laughs) you know. Now, there is a time as was brought to our attention by one of the men today, there is a time, you said it, to say goodbye. You're done. I'm over, you know. Jesus says, don't cast your pearls before swine. If you don't have people that wash out of your pastor's college, if you don't have professors that are fired from your seminary, if you don't have subs that (laughs) don't end well with you as a general contractor, you know, if, if you don't have clients that you say no to in selling records, You know, the no's prove the integrity of our ministry, right? Okay? Nevertheless, when it comes to us preaching, we must know our sheep. And it is no commendation of us if we preen ourselves on the fact that we're ranchers, that we run people, and that we don't let ourselves get caught up in the minutiae. What does Jesus say? What Jesus says is that he goes out after the one lost sheep and he brings him back and that when he returns, that in heaven there's more joy over a single sinner that repents than, I don't know, than what? The 99, thank you. I knew it was than something. I, I didn't know what it was, you know. And so, listen men. A preacher has to be a shepherd. He has to counsel. It is bogus to say you do your counseling from the pulpit. Now, it is true that if you are a counselor and a lover of your individual sheep and you go into the pulpit, you will do your counseling from the pulpit. It's absolutely true. But what Gay meant was basically that he did not waste time. He did not spend time on counseling because his counseling was in the pulpit. And that's just an excuse, one of the many excuses we have not to love our sheep. Okay? And thank goodness, Auchengay in his life was better than at the end of his life what he reported himself as being. Now, uh, let, me, let me go through a couple of things that if you're going to be a faithful shepherd in the pulpit, you need to avoid. Number one, you need to avoid manuscripts. Um... Now, that's hyperbolic. It's not true. If you don't write manuscripts every week, you will not be a good preacher. And so how can they both be true? Well, uh, David and I were given, I don't know if he gave it to you, I don't know who gave it, but Charles Simeon's biography. And I remember reading a very helpful book. I remember reading it and him saying that for the first four years of his work, he wrote out all of his sermons in a manuscript, and then finally was able to get away from them. I would say that I have written out manuscripts probably for the first uh, 83, 93, 203, 213, probably 25, 23 years. Um, and what I've seen through the years is that when I'm tied to a manuscript, I'm not helpful, but I am safe. 
all right? And the way I've rationalized during my life sticking to my manuscript is I've always said to myself, look, I'm undisciplined. If I leave my manuscript, I'm going to sin publicly. And so I need to stick to the manuscript. Well, there's a lot of truth to that if you know me. When I leave the manuscript, I sin. But if I stick to the manuscript, do I sin? And the answer is yes, but it's a different kind of sin, isn't it? When I stick to the manuscript, what I do is I am fearful of men and not of God. I don't trust God. I don't depend on the Holy Spirit. And so you have to do your preparation. This is not an excuse to be lazy. But men, if you go into the pulpit and you want security and safety, you will not be helpful to your people. And if you are, it's an accident, a divine accident. You have to preach looking in the eyeballs of your flock. I cannot tell you how important it is as you preach to look at the people you're preaching to. Look at them. You know, they say Edwards would fix his gaze on the back wall as he preached. And that is felt by many reform men to be sort of state of the art. That a sermon should be just as good no matter who you're preaching it to. And I say, it's insane. Can you imagine a doctor fixing his gaze on the back wall and prescribing or diagnosing? It's just insane. The first thing he does is say, strip, and here's a smock. <laughs> and so you sit there with your crack, you know, hoping the nurse won't come in, <laughs> you know. And then there are worse things that happen. <laughs> okay? And so why should the preacher be the one that's able to maintain his pride and your pride when we deal with our souls and we're dealing with eternal things? You know, the Bible says that exercise, and he's my hero with exercise, has some profit. You know, but spiritual discipline. Well, the point is, David is more disciplined spiritually because he's more disciplined physically. Okay? There's no question about that. All right. But, listen. If we're dealing with souls, and we can understand a fireman, you know, this is a great thing by Kierkegaard where he says, you know, that <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, where he says, you know, there's a fire and all these people want to be helpful and they bring their thimblefuls of water trying to put out the fire. And he says, what does the fire chief say? The fire chief says, to hell with your thimblefuls calls the cop, get these people out of here, you know. Well, if that's the way the fire chief is when it's just a fire, how do we justify the fact that we maintain the pride of our people in our own pride when we're heralds of Christ? How do we, how do we justify the fact that Edwards looked there and Edwards confessed that he was uncomfortable having personal consultations? Edwards said this you know, about himself. Edwards is wonderful, but let's not make a principle out of the place where he was bad. 
you know? It's good to look in your eyes because I know when you're confused. I know when you're hopeful. I know when you're faith-filled because of what I'm saying. I know when I'm scaring you. I know when I sprayed you with my saliva. I know when I'm violating your body space, (laughs) you know? (laughs) You have to look in their eyes. And if your eyes are tied to your manuscript, you can't do that. You have to read your people. Because as you look in their eyes, you won't just see what their eyes are doing. Immediately you remember the counseling appointment earlier in the week. Everything will come back to you. And you'll remember, oh yeah, that woman listening to me right now, and I'm not going to say it. And then all of a sudden your head will explode and you'll go into a direction you never had on, on, on the page. And if you're stuck with that manuscript... You can't do that. And you'd say, well, that's good. I'd say, no, it's not good. Does Paul ever write a letter that's not running off on rabbit tails that every professor of rhetoric and composition and homiletics would absolutely condemn? Let alone logic, you know, ad hominem, what's that about? I keep telling guys, look, Galatians is such a good book, right? Everybody loves Galatians, you know? I say, here's an idea. It doesn't just teach us the doctrine of justification. It also shows us a pastor and the tools he uses. You know? You know? Galatians is helpful, right? And you should be helpful. Paul does do what David or Stephen or David said. I don't, they're all fog with me. But he, everything, including the kitchen sink, is thrown you know, there's, there's like frying pans and, and rolling pins and flame torches, napalm and explosions going off, you know. Galatians is mind-boggling. It is. You know, why? Because he's got them in his heart. Oh, and by the way. I plead with Yodia and Syntyche to agree with one another in the Lord. Where'd that come from? You know, you go to some places in Romans, and his parenthetical asides go on for what? 7,000 words. Why? He didn't have a good editor. You imagine what they would have done to the Apostle Paul's letters if the editors today had gotten a hold of them. Forget your manuscript. Forget your manuscript. Pray, always pray. Always ask God to feed the people through you and always confess to God that it will be a miracle if he chooses to use you. Okay? Next, your elders and your people in almost every church are going to do everything they can to squelch your helpfulness and to silence you. And you've got to be prepared for it. Okay? You have to be prepared. They will try to gag you. Why? Because they do not want God to speak to them. And you say, well, why did they come to church? And I say, <laughs> how, many, how many hours do you have? The number of reasons people come to church. In America, it's still popular to be religious. Most of the people in your church are there not because of God, but because of religion. Okay? And so you have to have a tenacious commitment to be faithful to God and not to your elders and not to your church. Now, that's not quite true of our churches, right? 
But if you're prepared and then you don't get sucker punched by your elders, so much the better. <laughs> you know? But if you're not prepared, guys, you will never do what you're supposed to do. Now, what tools will they use to keep you from being a good shepherd in the pulpit? Somebody, and I don't know who it was, but somebody mentioned it earlier, and it is they will always tell you that it is not your job to convict. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Now, guys, right? Okay, okay. All right, remember how I said don't use a manuscript. So here's my manuscript, okay? It's not your job to convict, right? Okay, this is our Lord. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. You built the church of Christ the word for them, and that was good. But I have this against you. <laughs> okay, in other words, I want you to think Mike. Because when he says burnished, you know, they all know what he's talking about, right? And he says this, listen. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. She does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds, and I will kill her children with pestilence. Now, it's not our job to convict. And you know what they'll do here? They'll say, well, yeah, but that's Jesus. <laughs> you know? That's what I was saying. It's the Holy Spirit, Jesus, you know? It's his job to convict. You say, okay, Jesus also says this. Jesus also says, um, oh, <laughs> excuse me. Jesus also says this, no servant can serve two masters, for either will hate the one and love the other, or else will be devoted to one and despise the other. They can't serve God and wealth. Now the Pharisees, parenthetical note, now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things. And were scoffing at him, and he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way in. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And everyone, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Now, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Do you remember what came just before this? You remember what it says? It says this. It says, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And there comes hell and its torments for the rich man. How do we get out of this that it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict? And you say, Tim, we just told you. That's Jesus. I say, okay. All right, okay, that's Jesus, all right. 
Jesus again. And we're not supposed to learn anything about method, just truth from Jesus, right? So then we go to the Apostle Paul, who stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. Now, do I have to keep reading? Don't you know that by heart, you know? The idols. And then he ends by saying, In the past, God overlooked such, and it's Athens, ignorance. But now he demands that all people everywhere come to him. No, repent. <laughs> repent. Was it a message perfectly suited to stick the guts of the Athenians? How we turn that message into cultural contextualization? Okay, if it's contextualization, it's sharply honed to make the maximum impact, right? And you say, well, that's the Apostle Paul. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, yeah. That's the Apostle Paul, right, yeah, okay. How about Stephen? However, he's speaking to the ones that had built the Crystal Cathedral. They'd built the wonderful Gothic Fourth Presbyterian, Second Presbyterian, First Baptist, gorgeous, gorgeous buildings. Both Stephen and Jesus, amazing how the buildings figured prominently in the hatred of men for them. Okay? Beautiful buildings. Oh, God needs our beautiful buildings. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me? says the Lord, or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? Do you think that Stephen has their number? Do you think he's convicting them? And then he says this, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised. Imagine saying to Jews, uncircumcised. Imagine saying to Peter Lightheart, unbaptized. That's just... <laughs> you don't have to pay me for that one. That's volunteer corn. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now when they heard this, they nominated him for Book of the Year at the Christian Booksellers Convention. <laughs> they said, you need to be on the radio. They invited him to come speak at the Desiring God Conference. And his pastor's conference were just filled with people. Now, <clears throat> when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. Men in preaching, you have not begun to preach until people gnash their teeth at you. And you say, oh, that's hyperbolic. And I say, okay, okay, it is hyperbolic. 
But you know there's a lot of truth to that. Either Stephen failed or he was successful. There can't be any middle way with Stephen. Either he was perfect or he was perfectly awful. Either he deserved to die or he deserved to die. You know? And you say, okay, well, that's the Apostle Paul, you know, and that's Jesus, and that's Stephen. What about John the Baptist? You know, does John the Baptist focus his points? Does he know his people? Is he specific? And is it repentance again? John the Baptist came into all the district around Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Some of you last night I was saying that I think we need to get physical again in the Reformed Church. This is one of the reasons. John called them to baptism. You know, maybe we need to begin to call people to come forward and to ask for prayer at the end of our sermons. Maybe we need to again bring physicality and bodies and responsiveness to the disembodied brain world of reform doctrine. And he called people preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled. Every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. And so he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath of come, to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and don't begin to say to yourselves, how intimate is he with them? Don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. <laughs> we were baptized, you know. I was ordained by John Knox Presbytery. My father-in-law is Ken Taylor. Don't begin to say that of yourselves. I was at 10th Prez, you know. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. That's why we're here, man. We're the stones, okay? Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, Remember how Stephen, or somebody, <laughs> I'm going to stop trying to figure out who it is. Remember how somebody was saying that we should tell them to come forward? It was David. Tell them to come forward and talk to us. Tell them to come. Go to them. Tell them to come. And so that's what was happening with John the Baptist, because it says that they came to him and said, Teacher, what shall we do? And guess what? He said, well, go away and pray about it. <laughs> no, he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. The tax collectors came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. <laughs> How can we be so stupid when everyone in Scripture is so smart? What are you going to say to a cheerleader? Stop spreading your legs with panties in front of people. <laughs> I mean, you know, are we supposed to be the one people in the world that are just completely obtuse? You know? Oh, duh, 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 duh. You know? God bless you. You know? Go and be well. 
you know. Uh, now it's time for the ushers to take the offering. <laughs> okay. And you say, well, that's John the Baptist, that's Stephen, that's Jesus, that's the Apostle Paul. And I say, okay, all right, okay. How about, anybody want to guess where I'm going to go? <laughs> huh? No, I'm not going to go to Calvin, uh-uh. Huh? Nope. Close. No, no, no. Nope. Hear this word, you cows of fashion. He already said it. Hear this word, you cows of fashion, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring now that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holy. Behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. Can you think of a more pertinent text to America today in the evangelical church than that one? No respect for the husband. He is simply a, a, a what do they call it, a toady? You know? What, what was the word? What was the word? And so, listen, men, your people are going to try their best to make you unhelpful. They're going to try their best to keep you from applying the text of Scripture. They're going to try their best to get you to forget what you know about them. I have often said, and I will say it until I die, that the job of pastors today is to protect the congregation from the Holy Spirit. That is your job in the pulpit. And you can make as much of a show of it as you want. The better, the better. You know, it's that old Kierkegaard statement where he says that, imagine a battle, a mock battle, where everything is exactly the way it is in real battle. He says, you know, you've got the volley of musketry. It's blanks, but it's volley. You've got the standards. You've got the, the bugles blowing. You've got the artillery. You have the supply lines going back and forth and back and forth. The commanders yelling. You've got the marching. You've got absolutely everything exactly the way it is in real battle. Only one thing's missing, and that's the danger. And he says, so it is with Christian preaching today. There's no danger in the evangelical world today. There's no danger in the PCA. There's no danger in Wesleyan. I'm absolutely certain of it. And yet, the Bible calls us soldiers of Christ. The Bible calls us to die. The Apostle Paul describes his service, and everything about it sounds as if he's a Marine. You know? And not a Marine in Somalia where they were afraid to die, you know. The kind of Marine John's describing, where he was home this last time, they're about to be, uh, what do they say, De deployed. And John, I say to him, do you want to go? Afghanistan, he says, every single man in my squad, my company, whatever, every single last one of us wants to go. 
You go in front of a presbytery meeting, how many of you want to go? You know what they say about chaplains? I heard this again and again and again. In the military, you never see a chaplain on the front lines. And all that is is a reflection of what we're like here. We made such a studied avoidance of the breaches in the wall. Make a big show of going over to the part of the wall that's high and lifted up and secure. And we go to the top of it and we march up and down and spit on the enemies and march up and down, you know. And occasionally just let one loose, you know, lob a grenade here, there, and the other place, you know. And then go down the stairs into the security of the city. And meanwhile, the women and the children are over at the gap in the wall. And they're dying and there's blood flowing everywhere. And the city is being taken. And somehow, we're not there. You know, we realize that it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. And we realize that we need to have a manuscript, and we realize that we can't show our sins to people because then they'll despise us. Familiarity breeds contempt. So the moral of the story is avoid familiarity. You know? And the, the wall, the breach in the wall is humongous. Imagine a larger breach in the wall than the notion of what it means to be a man and a woman. Can you think of a larger breach in the wall? God puts his fatherhood on the man. Creates him first. And today, the church, the entire church, is committed to eviscerating sexuality of any higher significance. And then we think we can be missional, we can be gospel-centered, we can be biblical, we can give expositional, exegetical sermons, and avoid the fact that in front of us are mothers and fathers, sons and daughters, grandmothers and grandfathers, men and women. And then, when some of us say, you know, okay, you ready? <laughs> Remember, clear note, you know. There's a, you know, there's a gap in the wall! And they say, what are you, Johnny OneNote? <laughs> well, it has to do with being men and women. Dude, get some proportion. Well, people are dying. You know, oh, chill out. Take a vacation. Take a chill pill. Your sons are homosexual! You never taught them what it was to be a man! Your daughters are butch! Or cheerleaders, that's the two options today. <laughs> You're like, oh dude, you know, this is just like too heavy. You know? What did Amos say? Yeah, yeah. Did you say that? Say it out loud. Yeah, well, and he also said, I am what? I am neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. I would mind in my own business. God called me. You know?
know, he was a fig trimmer or whatever the, the word means. You guys know that when I, we were in seminary, there was a man that came from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School named Thomas Comiskey. McComiskey. Comiskey. I want to say McComiskey. And he came and he taught the minor prophets. And I was so excited to take that class because I wanted to study the minor prophets. First time around, I'd been with Buck Hatch down at Columbia Bible College, and I had, I had wasted that class because of my sin. And the final exam, I cried because I knew that I could never get back that, that class. Buck Hatch, oh man. And so McCormick, I thought, I have, a, I have a, another go, you know, I can, I can do it this Right, so I took the minor prophets, and do you know what he did with this text when we got to it, the Chalcedon? He went on for half an hour saying how the best scholarship tells us that this was not really a statement that was demeaning to women. <laughs> this is mind-boggling. You know, how could we convince people? You know, and it was so clear that all he wanted to do was avoid being accused of, you know, being insensitive to women, you know. And I think, you know, that's a perfect illustration of how we preach today. First, we avoid knowing our sheep, and then we avoid our sheep knowing us, and then we read from a manuscript, and then we run as far as we can from the breaches in the wall, and then we don't apply, and we don't speak to the conscience, and the money machine keeps going on. You know? <laughs> it just keeps giving. One last thing and I'll end. It's very helpful as you preach and as you shepherd to think of doctors because doctors are maybe the last profession that has any vestige of authority and fiduciary obligations that he can be sued for not keeping. And so as you preach and as you do pastoral care, think of doctors. And one of the things you have to think about, and if you love Martin Lloyd-Jones the way many of us do, it's the, it's the crowning achievement of Lloyd-Jones that he approaches everything he does diagnostically. And it's because he had been a doctor. You have to diagnose as a preacher. And you need to preach to the cancers, the, the uh, whatever the disease, you have to preach to that. And once again, <coughs> there are two things to watch very closely. Number one, your elders will do their best to usurp your responsibility to diagnose your flock. I remember for probably, um, I don't know, 10 years, nine years, I would have lunch every week with my head elder. And every single week, that man would sit there in the restaurant telling me that I was failing my flock in my sermons. Every single week. Week after week, year after year. And he would say he loved me. And he'd tell me that Nobody loves their sheep the way I do. He'd always tell me that, but then he would, every single week, he would tell me that my preaching was not what the people needed. And what he always said was, yeah, Tim, people's lives are difficult. 
They just need to be encouraged. Tim, people's lives are difficult. They just need to be encouraged. And I'd look at a woman whose husband was terribly wicked. And she'd come out, she'd be crying. She would be under conviction of sin. And she'd thank me and thank me and thank me. And then I'd go to lunch with him and he'd say, people just need to be encouraged. And nobody had a more discouraging life than that woman. And somehow, the more the Holy Spirit convicted her of sin, the more stronger she got. And so your elders are going to constantly try to tell you that they know better than you do. And let me tell you something. If you give in to them, you've failed your flock. It, okay? You've failed your flock. If your elders know better than you know what your people need, you've failed your flock. You have an obligation to know your elders board better than anybody does. You have an obligation to know your flock better than anybody does, right? Is everybody with me? That's your job. That's, that's what a shepherd does. All right? Don't let them usurp your obligation before God to diagnose your flock and to focus your therapy, your medicine, on what the need is, right? Everybody's with me now, right? Okay, I've nailed that point. Now I'm going to move over here. Always use the other elders and pastors to diagnose your flock and to focus your therapy. <laughs> and I don't know how they work together, but they do. <laughs> and maybe it's who you can trust and who you can't trust. If you are the limits of the spiritual commitment and faith and godliness and courage of your church. It's a, it's a sad church. If you don't depend on your elders and the other pastors, there's something wrong with you or something wrong with them. And you better find another place to minister. Right? Does this make sense? So I'll end with this. Think. Who am I with every single week? Think. I'm talking to him all the time and he's telling me what's right and wrong with what I'm doing David, my brother okay what he doesn't like that I've done what he thinks we need to do and this has been going on for 25 years now I'm with Stephen all the time. I see Stephen's eyes. I see his wife. I see his sons. I'm carried on the ox shoulders of Dave Carell. I was saying to somebody today, I think it was you, Gary. I'm not sure. But I was saying, well, no, it wasn't you guys. <laughs> I might have said it to one of you yesterday. I was saying, who sets the direction of church, Clear Note Church? Who sets it? I do, right? Because I preach most of the time. I set the direction, right? It's true. Who sets the direction? No question, it's Dave Carell. There's no question. <laughs> and why am I giggling? Because I'm a girl? 
I'm giggling because it's so utterly delightful how God uses people in churches to build the body up. And so it's your privilege to face down the elder who's always the counsel of despair. And it's your job to listen carefully to the ones that the Lord is moving and who have faith. You have to know the difference. Your ministry is built on your elders. You will live and die by your elders. I tell people that are planning churches, nothing blows up more new churches than making bad choices about who your elders are. Okay? And so you look at the men here. You look at Lucas. What do I get from Lucas when I preach, men? Are you with me? Those of you that know Lucas, you're with me. Right? What do I get from Ben? You wouldn't think I get anything from Ben, right? Right? I do. What do I get from David Wagner? And then I can go right down to David. I've done you. What do I get from Alex? And I can go right down every single one of these rows, and I'm telling you, men, if you throw yourself in the gap of the wall, what happens? I'm guaranteeing you that your head will scream, I'm going to die. It'll just scream, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. You may die for 10, 20 years, you may die. You may be in the wilderness 40 years. But when that blood starts flowing and when the bullets you know what's going to happen is you're going to be surrounded by other men. <laughs> and then you just look around and go, you know, this is pretty cool. You know, it really is pretty cool. And then they say, hey, I think we should train your son here at a pastor's college. And David's been saying this for years. David has for years been telling me that we should do that for years and I think oh yeah right we're gonna have a pastor's college you know and then Joseph comes along and it's time to put up or shut up and so I shut up and they put up <laughs> so listen hey guys you know what my favorite hymn is don't you does anybody know Oh, love that will not let me go. And you know what verse is my favorite verse? Oh, cross that lifteth up my head. I dare not fly, ask to fly, to run from thee. I lay in dust life's glory, dead. And from the ground there blossoms red, life that shall end. And listen, the older you get, the more you'll be aware of your sin and the more you'll think that you are not going to make it. And even that isn't wrong. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you that you've given me the privilege of being loved by them and loving them. Thank you for their wives. Thank you for their children. Thank you that you have protected us by giving us a humble building and giving us a humble, small group 
to share these labors together. And we pray, Lord, that you will be merciful to us despite our sin, that you will cover it with the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that you will bring us safely to that point where by your grace, your power, your Holy Spirit, we hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now enter into the joy that I have prepared for you. Thank you for these men, Lord. Thank you for them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.